I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And dignity is really important in a democracy. It is assumed that America is a nation of laws and is ruled by not by kings and dictators. In America, no one is above the law. But looking at our history, it does seem that somehow money and power are not only the goals of most law-breaking, but when those goals are achieved, also provide ways to slip around the laws that lesser citizens get caught with and pay a price for. As our current president faces only the third impeachment trial in our nearly 250-year history, our guest today reveals the various forms of presidential chicanery is irregular, but is not exactly a new thing. Historian James Banner found that, quote, the first instance of executive branch malfeasance occurred in 1792 during Washington's first term in office, end of quote. Lies and corruption, while certainly not at all standard operating procedures, do have a long history among presidents. So what's been done about presidential law-breaking and corruption? Do they, because of their money and power, get away with it? Can the ideal of equal justice for all be a reality? Our guest today is James Banner, now an independent historian living in Washington, D.C. He was on the Princeton faculty when he participated as one of the authors of the 1974 report to the impeachment inquiry of the House Committee on the Judiciary that became the original version of the book we're discussing today, a revised presidential misconduct from George Washington to today. By specialty, a historian of uh, the United States between the Revolution and the Civil War, his most recent previous book was Being a Historian, an Introduction to the Professional World of History. He has just completed the manuscript of a book-length essay on revisionist history titled, uh, tentatively, The Past is Never What It Was. I love that title. Both The Economist and Foreign Affairs recently named Presidential Misconduct, one of the best books of 2019. Much of these questions arise from an NBC Think article by Benner titled, From Nixon to Trump, the Historical Arc of Presidential Misconduct is Deeply Troubling. Indeed, it is. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Jim. I'm delighted to be here. Well, tell us about this new edition of what was uh, a 1974 book, which came out apparently after uh, President Nixon was gone. How did this new version of that, new edition, Presidential Misconduct from George Washington to Today, come to be? Well, the original uh, report was submitted to John Doerr at his request. He was the general counsel of the impeachment inquiry. He accepted the report, was about to give it to the members of his committee when President Nixon resigned. The report itself was in the public domain, um, namely it was available for any 
press or publisher to pick it up. Um, Dell Publishing did uh, publish the book uh, to absolutely no reviews and no notice, and it fell dead from the press, and there it lay. That report went from Washington's administration through that of Lyndon Johnson. Uh. We did not touch Nixon's because Nixon's term uh. at the time we were uh, preparing the report had not been completed, and of course a lot of the material related to it were, was still closely held and was not available for research. Um, but when the current crisis uh, uh, blew up um, in the last uh, three years, um, it never occurred to me, uh, I'm usually good at these things, it never occurred to me that we should bring the other uh, report, the old report, up to date until I got a call from Jill Lepore, who some of your listeners may know as a historian on the Washington faculty and a writer for The New Yorker, and Jill had never seen reference to the old report and the old book. She asked me what it was. I told her she wrote about it for The New Yorker, and then all hell broke loose at my desk. <laughs> Namely, it was clear that the previous report had to be brought up to date through the administration, in this case, of Barack Obama. So I uh, identified and recruited uh, uh, seven uh, new, uh, seven additional historians, uh, some of the uh, contributors to the old uh, report, unfortunately, are no longer with us. Right. And they, um, with my editing and through a lot of cooperation on all of our parts, uh, created an updated report in public. The Constitution was intended to be a foundation for all time. I, it's incredibly impressive, in my personal opinion. I am guessing that the intent was for the laws to be so specific and well thought out as to leave no room for high-level misconduct. Has there been a lot of misconduct? And for the purposes of the discussion, what do we mean by executive misconduct? Um, it's a definition that all of us have left purposely a bit vague. Um, we have two things. Um, all along, we've had two things uh, principally in mind. One is the use of public office for private gain. The shorthand term for that is corruption. And the other is open defiance, a known defiance of existing law. And sometimes uh, that defiance, I think we're seeing some of it today, and some of it is certainly for personal gain, um, uh, comes from an effort to, of, uh, on the part of individuals and uh, various agencies to get around law to carry out purposes that are not authorized by Congress. So those are the two kinds of misconduct we've had in mind all along. And I think we've captured just about everything in our report. I guess so, and that does seem to actually sum up uh, the current impeachment situation now. Uh, Indeed. Mis it, misusing it for our own personal gain and to uh, get around the laws. Well, of course, America in the 21st century is a very different place from the America of the 18th century when the Constitution was written. Talk, please, about the changing realities of presidential politics and the national political situation since that amazing instituting of our Constitution. Well, the, the changes have really had to do principally with the great expansion in the scale and the responsibilities of government. In, at that, in the opening years of constitutional government under Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and so on, there were really very few members of the uh, official staff, the bureaucracy, as we now call it, of the government. And the government could be run by very few men. Um, the, and, and, of course, most of these people were th those who were known as the gentry. They were comfortably off 
um, white men, of course, no women, no African Americans of any kind, um, and they were used to getting their way and um, to being in charge of things. That began to change in the ni- in the 1820s and 1830s, and the first big expansion of government took place under the presidency of Andrew Jackson, who one needed. Um, new post offices and new postmasters, new customs houses with new customs collectors, and so on, um, an expanded army, uh, an expanded civil service in, in many respects. And it's then that we see an increase in the level of misconduct at the presidential level. Now, by presidential level, I don't mean just the president. And in fact, many of the presidents were completely free of any kind of corruption. Sure. But I'm talking about presidents and their and members of what we call their official families, people in the cabinet posts and in lesser posts. And in those days, in, in the 1830s, really up through the 1870s and 80s, one could buy of federal offices. Um, one could get kickbacks um, from appointing one's friends to federal offices. And there was a huge amount of corruption, which we know of as the spoil system. And the first uh, effort to try to curtail that kind of monetary corruption in our politics took place with the passage in 1883 of the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act. That act established uh, civil service examinations for members of the federal staff um, made it uh, illegal to fire members of the federal staff for partisan purposes and um, set up qualifications for the various offices. <clears throat> and, of course, we've been making advances, and I think significant and, and applaudable advances in the quality and the honesty of the civil service ever since. I mean, after all, the Hatch Act prevents members of the federal service from for campaigning for other people for office and raising funds um, for, um, for various candidacies. And that, is, that has worked a huge transformation in the civil service. The, the Whistleblower Act that's being uh, much debated today uh-huh. is an effort to protect members of the civil service from being honest in their reportage of, of, of wrongdoing that they see. So I think with the growth of government, we've seen also the growth in efforts to make more honest and to um, make more protected the member of, of the federal civil service. That, that seems to make a lot of sense because, as you, as you say, in the you know in the early days, it was a very distant uh, uh, federal government, and my understanding is that until some probably the early twentieth century, average people's uh, only connection with the federal government was the post office. That it just—that's um, correct. I mean, it, we've long said it was out of sight and out of mind. Right. Of course, it was down here in Washington, in a small city, um, on an in, interior uh, river. It was not reachable by most citizens. One of the curious aspects of American government is the fact that, um, contrary to what happened in the states, the federal capital never moved inland. It never moved to the center of the country. It never moved to, say, uh, uh, St. Louis or Kansas City, sort of in the center of things. And so for a long time, it was really physically um, unavailable uh-huh. to citizens. And uh, as communications and roadways and trains and everything else um, brought 
connected the entire country was much easier for people to get here. And in, in that sense, too, the accessibility of government made people try to manipulate it for their own benefit. Aha. Uh-huh. That's an interesting point. There was an <laughs> an incentive to, to do something about that, to try to use the system for impeachment purposes. Well, speaking of impeachment... Well, as, but, but as well as for good purposes, too. I mean, I oh, don't yeah. think we should go too far in condemning the fact that uh, citizens like you and me try to make the federal government work on our behalf. The question is in what way we go about trying to do that. That's a good point. And, and again, it's it's the rarity. I mean, like... You know, we read in the news about crimes committed because they don't happen often because it's news. It's not the average thing. Well, impeachment history is happening now. Most people listening either remember or are certainly familiar with the near impeachment leading to the resignation of Richard Nixon. And while there was no impeachment even attempted of Ronald Reagan, we'll remind listeners that he did some dramatically or allegedly dramatically illegal things as well. You say describing uh, 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 Trump's alleged crimes, Nixon-like secret illegal malfeasance now appears to be mixing with Reagan administration cabal-like secret plotting. His flaunting of the law is rather amazing from a historical and judicial vantage point, end of quote. Now, going back to America's early days as a legal entity, you write that many presidents, starting with Thomas Jefferson, have faced calls for impeachment. Tell us... A bit about, you know, how, well, two things there, the how Nixon and Reagan, you know, their malfeasance is, is mixing under President Trump. And then uh, perhaps the, some of the first uh, known instance of executive branch malfeasance in 1792. Two questions there. Um, but I'll be happy to do that. Can I, can I reverse the sequence? After all, I'm a historian. Of course. So I like to start with the first dates. Um, the, 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 um, the first known instance of, of wrongdoing was in, as you mentioned earlier, in George Washington's first term, when an assistant secretary of the Treasury walked off with a quarter of a million dollars, that was a lot of money then, um, to use in speculating on public lands. And he was caught, and that was the end of things. Um, but greed then showed its head. I mean, that's a point I think to make right at the start here, and that is that greedy people, people wanting to benefit in any way they can and to line their pockets with money, will try to take advantage for government. And that's what William Doerr, this Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, did in 1792. Now, the, the Jefferson, the effort to impeach Jefferson was really rather ridiculous, and it failed. Um, It got a single vote in the House of Representatives, and it really was a partisan attack, and I think it's important to keep in mind that most of these impeachment inquiries are partisan in nature. Jefferson was accused by a Massachusetts Federalist of failing to make good use of the Boston Customs House, and there was a brief inquiry on the floor of the House, and the effort was turned back, and so it's never been considered a serious impeachment effort, although it was the first um, uh, it was the first time that impeachment had been raised on the floor of the House. Now, um, and, 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 and in a sense, all of the misconduct before has been corruption or failure to follow the law. What happened in Nixon's case, and Nixon's case was an extraordinary departure because for the first time in American history, an occupant of the White House orchestrated misconduct from the Oval Office that had never been done before. In fact, most 
presidents before then had come away from the difficulties of their administrations with completely clean hands. Nixon's hands were deep in the dirt, and I think one can be quite confident in saying that had he not resigned from office, he probably would have been convicted and removed from office by the Senate. That can't be known, but it seems rather likely. And the next instance, and a different, again, a kind of distinctive, um, in some ways unique instance of serious misconduct came in the Reagan administration when members of Reagan's administration, Robert McFarlane, Admiral Poindexter, um, Oliver Colonel Oliver North, um, took money that had been appropriated for one purpose um, to use for unauthorized um, uh, 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 ends. In this case, they it, it involved gun running and, and terrorism and money laundering and so on, trying to get mon- money intended for sale to Iran into the um, into the hands of the Contras in uh, Nicaragua, and um, that was run by a group of people outside the authorization and outside the superintendence of the Congress. And that's what made it so scandalous. Now, what has happened today is that those two kinds of malfeasance have been brought together. We have a chief executive who clearly is committing and orchestrating and running and managing misconduct from the White House. Yes. It's twinned with a a shadow government operating both within the White House and, and some of the agencies and outside represented by the person of Rudy Giuliani <laughs> to commit um to, to take actions which are not authorized by law or are part of normal American governance. And and the press and the punditry, and even members of Congress, um, I've, I've been really quite surprised, haven't noticed how these two things are being, these two, these two specific kinds of misconduct, post-1970 misconduct, are being brought together within this administration. I think it's a very, very grave crisis, um, the nature of which is too narrowly recognized, if it's recognized at all, by anybody in the United States. It is really... Uh... Uh, just kind of incredible to mix the two kinds of uh, uh, malfeasance, as you say. And and you reminded me that uh, when Nixon was president, there was the State Department with Secretary of State uh, Bill Rogers, but the real power was outside of that. Henry Kissinger seemed to be really running the show. So that was sort of, you know, outside the bounds of, of, of normal government operations. But, you know, not many people took notice of that but it but it was it, it, that may have been the case but it wasn't illegal um, ah, true i mean a president obviously is free to reach to any american citizen in fact and a non-citizen to seek advice and ideas and read books that are written by people who are not americans and so on to learn things that wasn't the problem the problem with nixon as with reagan was that illegal acts were being committed in their names in the case of nixon yeah. he was he was committing those acts himself. <laughs> so totally, it's amazing. And how different it is now that I, I can't help but think that I remember it well, that the Senate, yes, would have convicted him. But now it just seems appalling that, I mean, it, it appears that the Republican Senate is part of the cover-up. 
Like they seem to be obstructing justice as a whole body, which... Well, it it does, and we will see how this all works out in the next four to six weeks. But I do think it's necessary to point out to you and your listeners that the reason the Senate is being so obdurate is because the partisan situation favors that obdurateness. Uh Um, After all, most of the Republican senators are in safe seats, and the ones who are jeopardizing the overall Republican strategy at this point are those who are up for election or for re-election and whose seats are in jeopardy. Um, And that's what we're waiting to see these days, how it's all going to play out. Uh, Interesting. So, yeah. Ah, politics, partisanship. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the history of some important things in uh, our fragile democracy, a Republican form of government, with uh, Jim Banner, a historian who's uh, written about presidential misconduct from George Washington to today. A new edition is out there. And, uh, you know, just looking at how did we get here? Now, in terms of history... Nearly everyone has heard of Warren Harding's Teapot Dome scandal, perhaps because of its unusual, unforgettable title, Teapot Dome Scandal. But virtually no one but a history buff could tell you what it was about. Well, what was it and what were its effects on federal bidding rules as a result? So tell us about the Teapot Dome Scandal. Well, the Teapot Dome Scandal was one of those instances in which uh, members of the cabinet tried to favor their friends outside, in this case, people who uh, headed um, oil drilling concerns. It, uh, the Teapot Dome scandal concerned uh, the federally owned uh, naval oil reserves in Wyoming and in California, which were protected from private drilling. Um, they were opened um, by Harding's administration two private drilling concerns on the assumption that contracts would be led on a competitive and legal basis. Well, Secretary of the Interior Albert Fall um, needed some money of his own, got loans, and in repayment for those loans, in effect, gave contracts without competitive bidding to some of his friends. And um, the um, one, one of the uh, naval oil reserves in Wyoming was called Teapot Dome because the shape of the hill reminded people of a teapot. That's that's how it got um, its strange name. Um, federal contracting rules were gradually tightened um, after the 1920s, um, and I think that if you look at the record, which I don't think has been ever by a single historian compiled in toto, um, you would have to conclude that the 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 cleanliness of federal contracting has improved. I mean, nothing. It is not going to be perfect, right. and they're all going. They're always going to be malefactors and people in the various agencies who try to skirt the rules, either for private gain or to help others. But by and large, federal contracting has has gone better with the requirement that there be competitive bidding and so on. Now. It seems to me there was something in the news last week, I can't recall what it was, to suggest that some contract had recently been given without federal bidding, um, presumably to supporters of the president. I mean, that's likely to happen, and perhaps under this administration, it's more likely to happen than under others. But um, we can never expect complete conformity with the law, but certainly the overall record suggests that federal contracting behavior has improved. 
Boy, I, I would like to think so, and I, I do think so. It's it's amazing how you know Nixon denied uh, what he did, but Trump is like, yeah, I did it, but so what? And it it just it does amaze me. Now, I just recently read a book I, I would recommend called The Impeachers by Brenda Wineapple, which talks about uh, uh, the uh, impeachment of Andrew Johnson. He was impeached in the House but not convicted in the Senate. And one of the amazing things to me was how incredibly corrupt uh, money changed hands a lot and, and votes were pretty much bought in the Senate. And what he is accused of doing is is not really, I mean, what's, the specific charge was not all that much, but the the, the corruption in the uh, in the Senate was uh, it was pretty uh, amazing. The malfeasance that happened there, and and he uh, he used the spoils system as well, and he got away with it. Well, it it illustrates to me the role of money in politics, and we have made efforts. Uh, we Americans, some through legislation and other means, have made efforts to cleanse our political system for the last. 60 or 70 years of the influence of money, and we've really never succeeded. Uh, The McCain-Feingold Act did so until it was overturned by the Citizens United um, decision, and money is now pouring into our presidential and other races. Um, It's hard to know how we're going to curtail it, and you can still buy offices. You can't you cannot buy offices in the normal federal civil service, but clearly you can buy offices in the, as they're known, Schedule C appointees. Those are the appointments that are open to presidential um, selection um, in each administration. And we've seen it in the case of, of Ambassador Gordon Sondland, who contributed a million dollars yes. to Trump's election campaign and ended up being the ambassador to um, the EU without any experience in in negotiations and in diplomacy, and really with known, no known competence except the kind of sunny disposition and a checkbook that yielded a million dollars to the Trump campaign. So it's still possible, it's still possible, in effect, to buy office. And um, our efforts so far to, contour, to curtail the uh, purchase of office have, have failed, either by uh-huh. a failure of will in the Congress and in state capitals, or by virtue of decisions of the Supreme Court. And uh, I wanted to get back in history just a little bit before going back to the McCain-Feingold Act. We're jumping around a little bit, but hey, what the heck. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant and Harding were themselves, uh, you know, they, they, they seemed, they have a record. They're remembered as being somewhat corrupt. But in the truth is, they themselves apparently, if I got this right, are personally blameless for misconduct. But they're known as corrupt. I wonder if you could say more. What's the story with them? Well, um, the story with them, basically, is that they were incompetent presidents. And there's a difference between corruption and, comp- and <laughs> incompetence, or, or, or cleanliness and competence. Um, Grant and Harding, and to some degree Harry Truman, and I think probably Ronald Reagan, um, were were easy touches for friends and cronies and those in their families and so on. Um, they couldn't bring themselves to fire malefactors. They chose the wrong people. Um, they didn't set down strict rules of behavior for their cabinet members and others when they um, uh. established their presidencies and so on. So they were perfectly honest. They were just not effective managers of 
the presidential office. Uh-huh. And it's it's hard to know how you can protect against that unless you and I and our fellow citizens fail to elect people of known competence. And to some degree, we always take a chance. I mean, one of the problems here is that the, not the majority of the votes, to be sure, but according to the Electoral College, a man who was ignorant, incompetent, inexperienced, and has really serious personality disorders ends up in the White House. Um, and it's hard to know how over 200 and 230 plus years, and this country will continue on with roughly the same system of governance it has now, how you can prevent the kinds, the kinds in general of of, of, of problems we're facing today from occurring. Um, and it's a, it's a real trick of constitutional government as to how you keep corruption and incompetence out of the White House. And there's been no solution to that problem, and I don't think there ever will be a single solution. That is a very good question, and there is, you know, human nature. You can't, you can't always tell and talk about confidence and corruption. Uh, there's somebody on the Supreme Court right now who I think, uh, you know, did not exactly prove himself uh, competent, uh, and his character is certainly uh, questionable. Brett Kavanaugh, of course, but he's on there, and he's on there apparently for life is, is unfortunately how it happens. But w- one never knows. I mean, the Supreme Court, people can change. I mean, uh, Reagan... That's right. Well, they they can change, or it can turn out to be the case that their character defects don't show up in, in this case, their jurisprudential decisions. And uh, the jury is out, so to speak, and yes. going to be out for quite some time to see how Justice Kavanaugh does uh, carry himself uh, uh, in the court and uh, what kinds of decisions he helps to render. We don't know that yet. And as we mentioned, the McCain-Feingold Act, money used to be paid directly to individuals toward the goal of corrupting the electoral system, literally buying votes. But the, McCain, right. the McCain-Feingold Act was an attempt to address this long-standing problem. Then came Citizens United uh, by the, you know, the Supreme Court decision. You write that public offices and access to public officials, including presidents, are still for sale. In what ways did it affect prior efforts in reaction to corruption, to make the process more honest, and I assume there was a lot of money at stake here in uh, in the whole Citizens United decision. It's it's that the the details, I guess, are changed a little bit. You know, money is not directly changed hands, but what was McCain Feingold? Was it working, and how in heck did it get thrown out? Well. <laughs> You had a Supreme Court that was willing to throw it out on the grounds that money is free speech, or uh, the yes. tendering of money, the use of money, is an expression of opinion and thus constitutionally protected. Now, um, there are obviously widely different opinions as to whether that's a sensible and a just uh, decision, but the uh, the, the um, incontrovertible uh, upshot of it is that it has allowed money to pour back into the political system, whether through um, you know secret kinds of uh, organizations, uh, PACs as they're called, or mm-hmm. um, into um, uh, uh, made public contributions to campaigns. And um, there is nothing still um, that can prevent um, 
billionaires such as Tom Steyer and Mike uh, Bloomberg. Bloomberg from entering the race and, in effect, buying, trying to buy their way to the presidency. Um, and it's a terrible problem uh, yeah. for this country. Um, I've been involved since the 1970s in trying to do something about that. I was a member of the National Governing Board of Common Cause uh -huh. during the Nixon administration when we tried to pass the first campaign finance laws at state and national levels. Um, and uh, we've been defeated uh, all along the way. We thought we'd made some made some solid ground up with McCain-Feingold until the Supreme Court nullified, in effect, nullified the, the major thrust of that act. Um, so I think we have to go back to the drawing board, and this takes an aroused citizen. Mm. And if you and I and others don't carry on bloody murder, I think we're going to be stuck with this uh, situation for a long time. Well, what's been bothering me for quite some time is <laughs> so many people feel like uh, we're powerless. There's nothing we can do, which seems like somebody's effective strategy because, in fact, when the people do take the streets, when they are aroused and make some noise, it does work. There's no question it works. There's been many cases where it works. But somehow we've been convinced that there's nothing we can do about that. I, I find that a huge, huge problem. And, and when it comes... Well, I... Go ahead. Uh, well, I agree with you, and I, I think you and I probably together understand the passivity and the fact that people are just um, dumbfounded by the situation we find ourselves in now and don't know what they can do. But what they can do is not just take to the streets, but to involve themselves in political campaigning and fundraising and getting out the vote and so on. I mean, after all, um, and, and the Democratic National Committee itself has been flagrantly incompetent in this regard over a third of a century. And only now, after the Republicans walked away with their lunch, are the Democrats turning their attention back to state and local races, um, not just for the state legislatures, but for right. the positions of uh, attorneys generals in the states and judges who in some states are elected and mayoralties and, and so on. Um, uh, and... and and I think there's some hope because the Republicans had gained something like 800 over the past 25 years, had taken about 850 seats away from the Democrats in state legislatures. And just in the last two election cycles, the Democrats have gained back almost, uh, I think, over slightly over 350 of those seats. And that's what it takes. So it takes groundwork. It yes. takes not despair, but, but real involvement in the political process. And there's a lot we can learn from the old Tea Party, which did it exactly, as you say, at the grassroots level, from school boards Indeed. and town councils. It works. We have to mm -hmm. learn from that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, presidential misconduct from George Washington to today. Our guest is uh, Jim Banner, who is by specialty a historian of the United States between the War of Independence and the Civil War, and we're talking about how the heck we got here. And I, I of course, remember uh, Watergate <laughs> when a bunch of us, I remember being in a bar in a Republican area, uh, and Nixon was on TV, and everybody saying, oh my God, the president is lying. And that was just dumbfounding people. It was unthinkable. Now we have a president 
who lies all the time. He has been called a pathological liar, and I, I think that's quite correct. And as he boasted back in 2015, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose voters. But, but nothing appears out of nowhere, of course. There's context for all events in history. How, how did we get here when it comes to him getting away with lies and having such a large percentage of the population not caring that he lies? Uh, it's baffling. Well, um, remember that old uh, bumper sticker in Massachusetts after, um, I guess it was Nixon was elected. And 72. Read, Don't blame me, I voted for McGovern. Right. I mean, after all, we get in this situation because uh, enough people in the right places voted for Donald Trump to put him in the presidential office. And um, that's because uh, some people stayed away from the polls and yes. because the polls were rigged in some states and busy electrical, uh, electoral college is constructed the way it is. So a lot of factors came to bear. Um, but now the, the question uh, that can also be asked is why is it that our fellow citizens didn't recognize in this man before he took the presidential office that he was unfit for office? He'd never served in public life before. He was known uh, as a buffoon and nobody ever credited his knowledge about anything, um, and there were serious questions already about his competence as a businessman. Yeah. Um, and then you could, some people at least, could sense his personality disorders, which in some respects, um, Bert, I think we have to keep in mind are out of his control. I mean, he's sort of pure id. They, the, the personality disorders um, are different than character disorders. They come from birth. So we elected a man who is probably ADD, he's a sociopath, yeah. he's um, he got narcissistic personality disorder, which means he's got a little borderline personality disorder. Um, so we've, we've elected someone who is really defective in many ways yeah. and not competent to be president, but that's not his fault. Um, and it's not the system's fault, because the system doesn't have any breaks on character defects. The system leaves it up to you and me. And... Um, in this case, so the citizens, the voters, are responsible for not for, for putting this man in the White House. Um, and so I turn it back to uh, the voters, which is what the, the framers of the Constitution um, contemplated. Uh, their voters, of course, were very few. They were white, right. they were male, and they were property owning political competence. But those were the voters, and they they the founders uh, relied on those voters to bring us the best men. Well, obviously their hopes <laughs> were somewhat misplaced because we don't always do so. This is true. And uh, it, it, it does still amaze me that the people don't seem to care that he's lying, that, that there's a certain group. I mean, the Republicans, Lord knows, have defunded public education for decades. And uh, Trump himself has said he loves you know, uneducated people. That's a big part of it. And our, our our founders were very careful when it comes to education and what it took to be a citizen, what that means. They insisted on the importance of a free press to our Republican form of government. As you point out, existing laws and aroused citizenry, a robust press, vigilant federal officials, uh, now buttressed by protections of whistleblower laws, congressional investigations, and the courts have stepped in to call airing officials to account, end of quote. Now the president has amazingly called the press 
an enemy of the people. I talked to somebody who asked me where I got some information. I said, you know, I heard it on the news, and they just dismissed it because they don't believe the news. They don't believe the reporting. Uh, and Jefferson, I think it was, uh, was extremely concerned about efforts to rein in the press and how vital a free press is. How dangerous is this? Might they get away with crushing this near-sacred freedom, freedom of the press? Well, um, you're asking me, as someone who looks into the past, uh, to uh, predict what might happen in the future, and I can't do that as a historian. I I can, however, say that the press um, the press is under pressure today because of changes in our media environment and changes in our in our electronic environment really the web and blogs and 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 cable television and so on <laughs> but the press after being somnolent um, <laughs> between let's say 2014 and 2016 17 the press has really come roaring back in my estimation yeah. um into prominence and competence and covering the scandal. And it's happening not just in the pages of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, but it's happening on the television channels, the Wall Street Journal, the blogs. And and um, I, I tend to be optimistic about the role of the press. Um, it's, 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 it's the dangers to it now are principally financial. Um, the, the dangers yeah, I yeah, don't think true. are legal. I don't think the American people would stand for curbs being placed on the free press. I may be wrong, but I don't see much evidence except the 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 yammerings of the president. Yeah. Um, I don't see terribly many threats to the to the press from from political figures. And I believe it was Mussolini who came up with the term fake news because it was news he didn't like. And uh, there's a lot of similarity between Mussolini. I, I, I think so. I think that's correct. And, of course, it's a, it's a real danger that when we think that any news we hear that is contrary to what our hopes, that it's fake. Um, <laughs> that's terribly destructive of, of democracy and of, and of competent government. Um, but uh, let us hope that this passes. Boy, yeah. Well, hope and work hard to make it happen because we are citizens. Indeed. Really, we are citizens, which is a wonderful thing to be in America. Now, if I remember correctly, which sometimes I do, Nixon did not actually do damage to America's relations with our allies. Here we have Trump. How has his combination of White House complicity in crimes with shadow government operations uh, affected our relations with allies, and how might it affect uh, American governments uh, governance going forward? You know, this damage to America's relations with our allies. Well, I, let, let me take the second question first. It seems okay. to me that the first job of the successive president, the person who succeeds Trump, whether it's this year or, or the early part of next year or or five years from now, um, <laughs> it, it, it has to be. Uh, an extensive repair job in our foreign relations. Um, but here again, this is someone who um, uh, acts, who, whose acts are driven by self-interest and by personality. I mean, he's obviously taken with certain people who can act tough. Um, he um, will, um, he designs his foreign relations impulsively um, on the grounds of what can enrich Americans and, and not just himself but others. Um, he doesn't understand because he doesn't have any knowledge of other nations. 
Um, I was reading in some paper this morning, it may have been the Washington Post, that um, there's a new book out that uh, that reports that Trump was on a visit with Rex Tillerson, his former Secretary of State, to um, the Pearl Harbor Monument and didn't even know what the Arizona represented, you know, lying there visible in the muck at Pearl Harbor after having been bombed on December 7th, 1941. He didn't even know what the Arizona was. I mean, this is, it's impossible for someone to competently lead a nation who doesn't know its history and, and whose mind is unfurnished with even the most basic historical <laughs> fact, or facts of any kind in, in, in reality. So um, I don't expect someone like this to uh, be able right. to competently carry out American foreign relations with the entire nation's welfare in mind. That's beyond this man. And to have sheer incompetence and, and proud ignorance uh, mixed with, uh, you know, a criminal uh, a way of being, it's, it's just, it's amazing to me. And one of the two articles, there's only two articles of impeachment. One of them is obstruction of Congress. Now, the nation was outraged by Nixon's various attempts to cover up the origins of the original break-in of the DNC offices at the Watergate Hotel. Now the president just refuses wit. I mean, he doesn't allow witnesses to testify. The cover-up seems, uh, I mean, Nixon was saying, no, there was no cover-up. Now it's like completely overt. No attempt to even pretend Trump is not covering up. Even Mitch McConnell is part of the really in-your-face cover-up. He says, you know, he's not unbiased at all. He's going to, you know, just shut down the trial. Yet it seems possible, probably even, that this cover-up will succeed. Is there any recourse? Is the rule of law just a quaint, perhaps naive memory? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I hope that that last question of yours is rhetorical. I mean, yes. I think one, has to, one, ha- one has to answer no. Right. Um, what is the recourse? Well... Um, let us see. I mean, uh, we're, we're living through the actuality of that old Chinese curse. Right. You live in interesting, may you live in interesting times. Yes, we do. Um, we look what's happening as you and I are speaking. Um, more information is breaking through use of the Freedom of Information Act from court um, uh, orders and so on. We're learning more about the Ukraine affair. Mm-hmm. If the Republicans in the Senate um, succeed in, as you call it, and I think it's an accurate, uh, it's one of the accurate terms we can use to co- covering up the um, misconduct of this White House and acquits the president. There's nothing that prevents um, committees in the House and the House itself from, after it discovers more, if it discovers more about corruption and illegal behavior on the part of the Trump administration, going back and bringing forth additional articles of impeachment. And there's at some point, it seems to me, there's a likelihood that the the common front, the, the rigid Republican front in the Senate is going to have to become uh, begin to crumble. Um, I may be wrong in that. But there are there is other recourse. And, of course, the courts really haven't weighed in yet, ah. as they did in 1973 and 4. We, I mean, they've been weighing in little by little, but we haven't had big cases yet 
um, uh, decided at the, by the Supreme Court. So I think that there's a lot of fluidity left in the system, and if this effort to convict the president on the floor of the Senate fails, even to have decent hearings, I think that we could see the House and, and then the Senate going back for more. Uh, interesting. I, I kind of like that idea. I always like to hear a little bit of optimism these days. Now, the the to my surprise, the articles of impeachment did not include any mention of the seems pretty obvious presidential violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Is impeachment the only avenue that can be taken to enforce this law? Or, and and what what is the emoluments clause? To me, it seems like in just pure corruption that they're trying to stop. But are there other legal avenues to address uh, this uh, viol- alleged violation of the emoluments clause? Well, Bert, we really don't know, because I think that the two cases now, one much stronger than the other that are in the federal courts, um, are the first cases under the Emoluments Clause, from my understanding, that have ever been brought. Ah. So we don't know. There's no law of Emoluments Clause jurisdiction, uh, of jurisprudence. Um, and we don't know how the courts are going to rule. There's another law in the books which also has never been adjudicated, and that's the Logan Act of, of 17. Uh, 90, which which prohibits uh, American citizens like you and me treating with other nation states um, and claiming that we speak for the American government. Um, so th- there there remain laws on the books, clauses in the Constitution, which have never been brought into force. Um, one wishes they had been earlier, I suppose. I mean, in the sense of establishing law, maybe one should be gratified that we haven't faced an emoluments clause. Uh, uh, a problem until this presidency in the, in the 230 years of American constitutional government. Um, but I don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, you don't either. No. But um, this is one of this is one of the things that makes our day and age rather more interesting than quiet days and ages. Yeah, interesting times. And Emoluments Clause, if I have it right, uh, basically says that a president may not use his or her office. Uh, for personal financial gain. And there's the Trump right. Hotel, downtown Washington, uh, that people from foreign countries, foreign dignitaries, feel compelled to stay at. They've raised their prices, uh, and uh, it just seems such a clear violation of the emoluments clause. Yes, well, it's not only that, of course, he's trying to set up, and his, his children and his company that still exist, trying to set up business and other um, oh, right. countries, and speaking, he's president of the United States, so he assumes that those countries will bend to his will because of the power that this country uh, possesses, and so on. And um, so there are all sorts of ways in which the um, uh, Monuments Clause, to, to, in your view and, and mine, we agree with each other, is being breached, but we still don't have any legal decisions, uh, nor do we have the known instruments to bring a president to, to book on this matter. So we'll have to see what happens. But it could happen. There, there are ways. I mean, there's the whole Southern I District. I think so. Yeah, there's the Southern District of New York, which uh, seems to uh, be a significant thorn in Donald Trump's side. And uh, I wish Indeed. I wish them well. Well, in the, I mean, American history is, I mean, compared to other countries, pretty short, really. And it's been called the American experiment. I, I think it is, you know, the experiment in having self-government gov- of, by, and for the people. 
now, you know, there's a part of human nature which easily becomes corrupt. How, how well, if you were to, you know, grade it, and I, I, you know, nobody's really in that position to do so, but how well has our democratic government worked with regard to checking abuse in general? And now, granted, you know, the abuse has been limited to just a few people, really. We need to emphasize that. But how, how, do you, how do you think, you know, in terms of checking abuse and keeping our public servants honest, how have we done in general? That's a very, it's a very important question. Um, I'm glad you've asked it. Um, it can't be answered. It can't be answered because analog, uh, uh, records analogous to the ones that I have helped compile with other historians don't seem to exist for the um, records of the highest offices of government um, in other nations. Now, I think we're probably, we should compare ourselves to the other constitutional democracies, whether they're monarchies or republics, and that would be in the Western European and Scandinavian countries, Uh maybe Japan, um, South Korea, you know, nations uh, like that. We can't tell. I mean, we really, I, I can't tell. No, no answer to your question is is available. Of course, but that may not be the comparison to make to compare the American record with that of, say, France or Germany or Sweden. Maybe we should compare the American national level with with uh, conduct at the state and city level. Yeah. And here, my, my here, my guess would be that the national record isn't so bad. Um, if you compare the national record with, shall we say, and I hear I risk um, some some uh, some uh, pushback from some of your listeners, if we compare the national record with that of, say, Rhode Island or New Jersey or Louisiana <laughs> or Illinois or Chicago or New Orleans, it looks pretty good. Um, so um, good. I don't know. I mean, we, we, no one has ever ventured this. I mean, this, this, this record of, of, of presidential misconduct is unique. Um, there's no academic study of presidential misconduct. There are no books on presidential misconduct as a subject. So it's really very hard to tell where we stand. But I think we probably come off pretty well. I like that. That's good. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I love learning from history. Uh, and uh, it, uh, what can you uh, direct listeners to if they want to read more of your stuff, if they want to follow your writings? Well, um, um, nothing else that I do has to do with the, the presidency. That's or okay. With, um, with this subject, I was brought into this in 1974 as a student principally at that time of Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and of the Federalist Party. And I wrote the uh, chapters on Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. And then it was only uh, recently, and since 19, uh, 2018, that I was brought back to stand as a, as a kind of uh, expert on presidential misconduct. But I'm going to retire from the subject if the world lets me and go back to other subjects. And so... Um, there's nothing else that your listeners can follow of mine on this subject. But if we were to look up presidential misconduct from George Washington to today, we might find a little bit in there as well, right? I, I would hope so. Thank you so much, so much. And uh, not at all. And it's been it's been very enjoyable to be with you. Thank you. Like likewise, I assure you. Thanks so much, and uh, always good to end uh, with some sense of optimism and a, and a new perspective. Here's a song about Trump. 
Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails. If Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think you might want to listen. China should start an investigation into the Biden. Siding with Putin instead of the CIA, reducing his debt load by demanding love. Hosting some nits at Mar-a-Lago He's a con man of food That's our president Crime after crime Pardons dangled To White House aides to break the law Grammar mangled He's a grifter, a crook That's our president Crime after crime He's insane, narcissistic, can't help himself Crime after crime When he falls, will the cops 